to Matthew chapter 2, the gospel of Matthew and the second chapter. We've never talked about this. One of the most interesting things uh, about the Christian life to me, living the Christian life, has been uh, the Christian sense of humor. Uh, I came to know the Lord as a college student, and so my sense of humor was already pretty well uh, developed before I submitted it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so uh, some of the things that Christians find funny have just always been really funny to me. Uh, try walking around in just Christian circles with a name like Thomas, okay? Here's what you get. Oh, there he is, old Thomas, old Doubting Thomas, old gotta see it to believe it Thomas. Here he comes right now. And it's like, Ah, ha, ha, you got me. That's funny. That's hilarious. Real, real creative. Can we talk about how you got your name? Okay. Like, I'm named after an apostle, okay, who just wanted to have the same experience as all the other apostles had gotten to have. And then after he had it, he turned around and gave us one of the strongest statements of Jesus and divinity in the New Testament. My Lord and my God. Like, that's how I got my name. And you don't, you, so you can poke fun at that, but you don't think it's funny at all. That you got your name from your dad's favorite firearm manufacturer. That's not funny to you. Right? I mean, if you, if you were named after the make or the model that your parents went on their first date in, do not come at me with this Doubt and Thomas nonsense. Also, we can all tell. We all know when you're named after a country store. Okay? If your name's Cash or Hank or Waylon or Reba, <laughs> we know where that came from. Right? Or a song, like real talk. Jolene? Jolene has absolutely taken off in the last two decades, popularity. So if you got your name from one of those sources, that's fine. I love you. You're great. But just don't act like that's a more noble source than, I don't know, the book of John, okay? But now y'all got me fired up with your cute little Christian corny joke, passive-aggressive nonsense. Let me just go to bat for my boy one time, for my name's sake, Thomas. What you see is actually Really, really important. What you see matters. I'm not necessarily talking about with your physical eyes, not just your physical eyes, but like with the eyes of your heart. Like what you see is going to affect how you think and how you feel and how you live. And if you don't see some of the right things and you don't connect some of the right dots, you'll never think or feel or act and live the way that the Lord wants you to. So what you see matters. I'm convinced that our evangelist, Matthew here, has written this text in such a way that he believes that. I think he wants to communicate that to us. He really wants us to see some things about the Lord Jesus this morning. He's written this in such a way that we can connect some of the dots. And so I have a super easy job this morning. I'm just going to read our text for us. And I'm just going to spend the rest of the morning asking you, have you seen it? So let's read and let's pray and then we will do that. Matthew chapter 2, pick up with me in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, this is the wise men, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, uh, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, uh, we trust, we believe that this book does live. We ask that you'd make it live to us uh, right now. Uh, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work uh, in our midst, in our hearts, in our minds, that we might see what you want us to see with eyes of faith that only you can give. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's just go back to the top. And I'm just going to start by asking you, can you see it? Do you see it? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen a dreaming Joseph end up in Egypt before? Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Can you see it? Do you see it? Have you ever seen it? I have. I've seen a dreaming Joseph end up in Egypt before. First, Joseph uh, was the favorite son of Israel, right? He's the one that has the coat of many colors. And we learn the hard way from Joseph that if you have dreams about how your whole family is going to come and bow down to you and submit to you, and then like you go and tell all of your older brothers that that's going to happen to them too, eventually they will get mad and they will respond and they will maybe decide they want to kill you. But then maybe they'll change their mind and they'll say maybe he's worth more uh, alive than he is dead. And maybe they'll sell you down the river to some Midianite folks. And that's what happened. That's what happened to our, our first Joseph. Our first dreaming Joseph that ends up in Egypt. He gets sold down the river as a slave to some Midianite folks who take him to Egypt. And wouldn't you know it, he ends up being purchased by Pharaoh's right-hand man. So this first dreaming Joseph who ends up in Egypt, well, well, he gets there. He has quite a convoluted life during his time in Egypt. Some people love him. Some people want to see his downfall. He goes through all these different circumstances. But before the curtain closes on his life, it comes to pass. Here come his brothers. He's now royalty. And so they come bowing down to him. The Lord has actually sent, providentially, this first dreaming Joseph to Egypt as an advocate for his people. And in his providence, he's placed this one here in Egypt who's going to be used to deliver his people. Have you ever seen a dreaming Joseph end up in Egypt before? I have. Here comes the Lord Jesus. Now, going to Egypt via our next dreaming Joseph. Via the Lord's providential direction of this new dreaming Joseph, by these dreams, here goes Joseph to Egypt, and here goes the Lord Jesus with him, the one who will be an advocate for the people of God and will be used to deliver them out. I don't know about you, but I've seen a dreaming Joseph end up in Egypt before. Why? Why does he need to go there? Verse 13, right there in the middle. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Can you see it? Do you see it? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen 
a king of the world, declare war on Hebrew infants. Have you ever seen that? I've seen it. Because his first dreaming Joseph who went off to Egypt, he gets there and he's there, he lives and then he dies. And after he dies, here come some people in power who don't know Joseph real well and who don't care for his people all that much. And they look at this situation and say, you know, uh, maybe we could kill two birds with one stone here. Because we don't really like these people. They're not from here. They're not us. And we've got a lot of work that we need to get done around here. So maybe we could just take these people and we'll enslave these people and make them do our work. And we'll just suppress all this whole Israelite deal and take care of that. There's a challenge that comes from oppressing a whole people group, and that challenge is kind of latent to that, is, you know, maybe the people that you're oppressing decide they're going to turn the tables one of these days, and they're going to rise up, and they're not, they're not going to have it. And so the Egyptians get wise to this thing, and they kind of look into the foresight and say, maybe we should do something uh, about this, and so we're going to play some prevent defense, and so Pharaoh issues this decree, I'm declaring war on the Hebrew infant. And his first act of war is to enlist the midwives, the women who are Egyptians who are being used to help deliver babies at this point in time. He enlists them and says, when you go into a house and a Hebrew woman gives birth to a baby boy, you kill that boy. That's about as heartless as it sounds. And so the the midwives struggled to do that. They, They had a hard time getting on board with Pharaoh's scheme here. And so as the course of time goes on and Pharaoh keeps seeing these little Hebrew boys running around in their pampers, he decides... We're going to have to shift gears a little bit. So his second act of war is, okay, I'm actually going to hunt these people down. I'm actually going to pursue these boys, and we are going to issue a decree to all the people. You take all the Hebrew boys, every one of them that's born, and you cast them into the Nile River. And that will take care of our problem. The midwives aren't getting the job done. Maybe we can get the job done. We'll take care of the problem, which seems like a foolproof plan, right? I mean, that's got to work. If we actually hunt out and we pursue all of these Hebrew children, if we run them down, it's got to work, right? Except one small problem if you're Pharaoh and one small problem if you're Herod. You ever seen a deliverer spared from the war on the Hebrew infants? You ever seen that? Verse 14. And he arose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Have you ever seen a deliverer spared from the war on the Hebrew infants? I have. So when this first king who declared war, this first particular king who declared a particular war on these Hebrew infants, after he declared that war on these Hebrew infants, well, there was one Hebrew infant that got delivered. So his mom gives birth to the son. She sees in him, this is a fine child, this is a unique child. She's not even biased at all. And she's very clear, I would like this baby to be delivered from this. So uh, baby boys, she tries to hide them, but they eventually get too big to hide. And so this particular baby boy gets too big to hide. And so she takes and makes him a basket, and she waterproofs the basket. And she goes down herself and sits it on the edge of the Nile River in this basket in hopes that the Lord will have mercy on this boy. And wouldn't you know it, in the course of time, the Lord does have mercy on the boy. Here comes none other than Pharaoh's daughter, the, the daughter of the king who's declared war on the Hebrew infants. This first go around, here she comes down to the edge of the water, and she sees the basket, says, go get the basket, looks in the basket, and says, oh my goodness, it's a Hebrew boy. 
She has mercy on the Hebrew boy. She takes the boy. She raises the boy eventually. She'll name the boy Moses, which means to draw out because she had drawn him out of the water. At least that's what she intended it to mean. After she takes this boy and delivers him and now is raised in the household, God's got plans for him. God's got a plan for how this thing is going to go down here. He's a deliverer. The Lord's going to use him to do some drawing out of his own. Have you ever seen a deliverer spared from the war on Hebrew infants? We'll see it again now. As Jesus makes his way to Egypt. He's now been delivered from this second installment of the war on the Hebrew infants. You see, uh, the Lord has a plan for this Jesus. This is the one. This is emphatically the one that we've seen who's coming to save his people from their sins. This is the one we've been waiting on who's coming to crush the head of the serpent. This is the one through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This is the one who is the true and better and greater Moses who's going to speak and the Lord's going to hold folks to account for what he says. This is the one who's coming to rule and reign over the people of God. And nobody is going to run this train off the rails. The time has been fulfilled. The fullness of time has come and God has come to do what the law weakened by the the flesh could not do and never could have done. He is here. And if you think Herod's got something for him, watch out. If you think somebody else is going to destroy this thing, you just might want to deal with that. If you think that the one who's come from Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of the serpent is now going to be defeated by the offspring of the serpent, you got another thing coming. You just hide and watch. Because the Lord's got plans for this Jesus, and so the Lord delivers this Jesus to Egypt from the war on Hebrew infants. Have you ever seen the deliverer spared from the war on Hebrew infants? Have you ever seen it? Do you see it? Can you see it? That the Lord calls his son out of Egypt. Verse 14. This was to fulfill... But the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Have you ever seen the Lord's son walk out of Egypt? I've seen it. And you say, Thomas, how have you seen it? What do you mean you've seen it? We all know Jesus is the only begotten son of the God. And here he comes, and he's just now taking up flesh. I've seen some of this other stuff you're talking about. I don't see this. Can you please tell me how it is that the Lord's son has walked out of Egypt before? Well, uh, right there in verse 15 for you, you have a quotation from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. And what happens in Hosea chapter 11, you can go see it for yourself. The, the word here that we're talking about, we're saying out of Egypt, I call my son. The word son is being used to refer to the nation of Israel. The Lord's quite clearly talking about Israel back in Hosea 11. And it's not the first time he's done that either. So this baby, Moses, the first one who's delivered from that war on Hebrew infants. Well, he goes on to grow up, and he grows up like way, way up. And when he's about 80 years old, the Lord comes to him and says, Hey, Moses, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and you're going to walk into Egypt. I want you to go back into Pharaoh's household, and you just walk right up to him and look him right in the face, and you say, all right, here's how this thing is going to go. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill 
your firstborn son. What's it going to be, Pharaoh? You want to let my son go, or you want me to kill your son? Those are your options. Now, if you're struggling to see, like, hey, how is it that the Lord can call Israel his firstborn son? Let me help you out just a little bit, right? At this point in time, what it means to say my firstborn son, the firstborn son, does some very particular things. First of all, he receives the favor of the father. He gets the lion's share of the father's inheritance. The favor is handed to him. So he's, he's favored. He's not just favored, but he also represents the father. It would be the firstborn son is to be the representative, the full embodiment representative of the father. There's also a lot of responsibility that comes with that. The firstborn son is the one who's going to execute responsibility on the father's behalf. So there's incredible favor, and then there's incredible uh, representation, and then you've got this responsibility that comes with all that. And so that's how the Lord is able to say something like that about Israel. If you know your Old Testament even just a little bit, does that not sound a little bit like Israel? They are the people who've been entrusted with incredible favor. They are this direct revelation from God. I mean, you read the book of Joshua, and you tell me if you don't think Israel's got some favor on them. They do. They also uh, are the people who are supposed to represent God to the nations around them. They're supposed to be a holy people, marked out, set apart, so the nations would look on them and say, that is a distinct group of people right there. The Lord intends them to represent him to the nations around them. And then there's great, great responsibility. They are the people who are held accountable for what they do with the law of God, which is why they keep getting disciplined. You see all these good things happening to the nations around them, and they seem so prosperous and all that good stuff, but the the Israelites are held responsible. They've got revelation from God, and they're responsible for what they do with it. And in the course of history, wouldn't you know it, Israel, that firstborn son, will end up walking out of Egypt. Because Moses goes, and there's a long line of plagues. You're very familiar with that story, I presume. And at the end of that long line, what ends up happening, the Lord does kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And in that moment, for a brief moment, Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to let you go. Get out of here. And so they go. Off they go. But Pharaoh, just a few minutes later, picks back up on his hard-hearted nonsense, and he decides, I'm going to go after those people. And so he goes after the people, he pursues them down to the Red Sea, they get some cornered, and he sicks the dogs on them. And in the middle of the night, the Lord parts the Red Sea, Moses and the Israelites walk through it. And so the one who's been drawn out now draws the people out of Egypt. The Lord has used this deliverer, delivered from the war on Hebrew infants, to deliver his people from bondage, from slavery. Have you ever seen that before? Have you seen it? Do you see it? Can you see it? The Lord's son walking out of Egypt. Well, you can see it again. You can see it again. Because now the Lord's son, Jesus, he himself is coming out of Egypt. Hear the words with me. We've already been in this text, but from Colossians chapter 1. Hear what it says about the Lord Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Brothers and sisters, that passage makes two things very, very clear. Number one, Jesus is eternal. There has never been a time when Jesus was not. All things were created through him. And he's the firstborn. 
He's the firstborn over all creation. The, God, the, the favor of God particularly rests upon him in a particular way. There's no doubt that Jesus is favored by God. As you watch Jesus walk around in the book of Matthew, you tell me if you don't think the favor of God rests upon him in a very particular way for a very particular purpose. You tell me. You tell me if you don't think he is the representative of God, the, def- the definitive representative of God. That passage we keep talking about from Deuteronomy 18, where Jesus is going to be the greater Moses, that's what this means. When he speaks, he speaks for God because he himself is God. So he's favored. He's got, he's got this representative uh, quality of him. The, he represents the Father. He speaks on behalf of the Father. And you say responsibility. What about responsibility? Brothers and sisters, Jesus has the greatest responsibility ever in the history of the world because his charge from the Father, maybe you'll remember it from 1 Timothy chapter 4, Jesus the Christ is the one who's coming to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the firstborn son of God in that sense. And so, have you seen it? Can you see it? Do you see it? Have you ever seen it? The Lord's son walking out of Egypt. Is it starting to click for you? Are you starting to see? Like, let's just imagine. Let's just imagine maybe it's 65 AD and you roll up to this document for the very first time and you've got a really good working knowledge of the Old Testament. You're a Jew. You know the Old Testament like the back of your hand. Do you think you could tell? Hey, this is the one we've been waiting on. I'm supposed to see this. I'm supposed to connect some of these dots. Why is it that Jesus keeps having all these experiences, all these, like, why has the Lord orchestrated this in such a way that it's so crystal clear? Something special is going on with this little baby who's been born in Bethlehem. Maybe the Lord wants me to see it. So do you see it? Can you see it? Have you seen it? If you haven't seen it, I hope you see it right now because we're, Uh, Coming to this text is a group of freshly minted Nehemiah scholars. So if you haven't seen it yet, just check this out with me. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Can you see it? Do you see it? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen the women of God weeping over the departure of the children of God? You read that quote and you might have a couple of questions. You might say, uh, Rachel, who's that? And why is she crying? Those might be questions you have. Well, this Rachel, right, is the wife, the favorite wife of Jacob. Jacob, who goes on to be renamed Israel. And maybe even from just what you've heard this morning, you might could surmise that being the wife of Israel is a big deal. And yes, being the wife of Israel is a big deal. Uh, This quote is from Jeremiah 31. That's what you saw in verse 18 right there. It's a quotation from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Rachel, by that point in time that the prophet Jeremiah pins that, she's been dead for like a really long time. And so she's not physically crying, she's not physically weeping, but she's being used as a representative. Like her name stands in for the women of Israel. The women of Israel weeping, the women of Israel crying. And you say, well, why are they crying? 
If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, you would know why. Crying? Jeremiah has just said emphatically and definitively, hey, y'all are going to exile. Like, y'all are going to Babylon. Your kids are going to be hauled off and enslaved to these cruel, savage people because of the sins of y'all's generations. And so, Rachel, the women of Israel, weep and cry over that. Have you ever seen that? You ever seen the women of God weeping? Right now, you're in a new installment of that. This is why the connection's here. The women of God are weeping now. Did you see verse 16? Like, their children just got killed. The women of Israel are weeping, or at least the ones that are in Bethlehem, presumably, because their children have been murdered by this phony king of the Jews who's running around like a tyrant trying to protect his phony kingship. This is an atrocity. You know what else is an atrocity? Because the phony king of the Jews is doing all that stuff, the rightful king of the Jews is now in exile. He's in Egypt. And Matthew wants you to see that. He makes that connection for you. As the women have weeped before, so now the women are weeping again. The true and better Israel is in exile. But Jeremiah 31 doesn't stop it, verse 15. Jeremiah 31 actually keeps going. And there's a promise made in Jeremiah 31 to these women. The women who are weeping. We just read verse 15. Here, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears. For there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. I'm going to bring them back, Rachel. You don't have to cry, Rachel. You don't have to cry, women of Israel. We know this is bad. We know this looks bad. Things are bad. Your kids just got killed. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is in exile. The true king of the Jews isn't even welcome in Jerusalem. This ain't good. But something good's coming out of it. And the king's coming back. The king's coming back from exile. And the king's coming back from exile to fulfill a part of Jeremiah 31 that has never, that has never been fulfilled before. No Babylonian exile ties here. No. Jeremiah 31 goes on to say in verse 31, hey, look at here. The days are coming, declares the Lord. And I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Brothers and sisters, the king is coming back from exile and he's coming Back from exile on a mission. And let's just be really, really, really clear. Ain't nobody going to stop him. You just wait and see. You hang around with me to the end of Matthew. And you see if we don't have a new covenant in his blood by the time we get done with this thing. The king's coming back. He's coming back from exile. He's coming back from exile on a mission. No one's going to stop him. And in case you were just wondering about whether anybody could stop him or not, let's read verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Can you see it? Do you see it? Have you ever seen it? 
Have you ever seen that those who oppose God always end up opposed by God? This is now the third time in this text you've been told that Herod is dead. If Matthew just wanted you to be aware of that, he could have told you one time. You've seen it in verse 15. You've seen it twice more just now. Like if Matthew was just like, I need you to be aware of this, he could just do that one time and we'd have been aware. He doesn't want you to be aware. He wants you to see it. He wants you to get it. He wants you to connect some of the dots. The one who's declared war on the Hebrew infants now is very much dead. And the only infant he was trying to kill is very much alive and is making his way back from Egypt. How about that? The Lord always opposes those who oppose him. Herod didn't just die. Herod's death wasn't just any old death. Got a lot of confidence it was a very particular death. Our Jewish historian friend, uh, Josephus, helps us out a little bit here. He gives us great, great detail surrounding Herod's death. It's closely connected chronologically as well as textually right here to Herod's attempt to kill Jesus. And after Herod has made this attempt to kill Jesus, well, Herod succumbs to uh, a very rare, afflicting uh, form of disease. Only 500 people in the history of the world have ever been recorded to have had it. Uh, From the medical uh, experts that we have now who look at Josephus' data, they know with really good confidence what it was. Uh, Herod had a form of chronic Uh, kidney disease that he suffered with, but then that uh, ended up culminating in, uh, this is a direct quote, maggot-infested gangrene in a very particular area of his body where a male particularly wouldn't want maggot-infested gangrene to be. And so he ended up suffering and dying from intense intestinal pain He's having convulsions in every limb of his body, and he, his breathing is so hindered by all of this, he eventually just suffocates to death. Now, you call that whatever you want to. You can call it a coincidence. You can say whatever. I'm just going to call it he got smited. Seems to be that's what Matthew wants you to see and understand. Those who oppose God always end up themselves opposed by God. Herod is just one in the long, long line of people who've experienced this reality. God has no successful competitors. No one has ever successfully rebelled against God. When you compete with God, you lose. God's justice always prevails. And you said, yeah, but what about when it doesn't? Thomas, what about when it doesn't? What about all those people who just go along in their rebellion and things seem to go so well for them and they seem to have it so well made and they're just so corrupt and they get get away with their corruptions and they're so unjust and they get away with their injustices but you say something like God's justice always prevails. There's just so many people who seem to be the exception to that rule and I would just say to you, I don't know any of those people. I would know them if I only had physical eyes. But if you've got eyes of faith, you know that the Lord's in the business of settling accounts. All sin ever has been dealt with. It will either have been dealt with at the cross of the Lord Jesus as he takes the wrath of God on behalf of all those who will ever put their trust in him. Or it will be handled as God's wrath is poured out on those who persist in their rebellion against him in a place we call hell. God has no successful opponent. No one has ever successfully opposed God. Those who oppose God end up themselves opposed by God every single time. Do you see it? Can you see it? Have you ever seen it? You'll need eyes of faith to see it. Do you see it? 
Can you see it? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen your need for eyes of faith? Verse 21. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Have you ever seen your need for eyes of faith? Something very interesting has just happened for us at the conclusion of this text. So you've watched Matthew now twice say, this happened to fulfill, or this was to fulfill. And so now he says, for the third time, he says something very interesting. Hey, this might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, will be called a Nazarene. So the first time he said it, he quoted Hosea 11, and then he quoted Jeremiah 31. But right here, he didn't quote anything. He didn't quote anything. No direct quote. We, we have, there's no specific text that he has in mind, at least as far as me and you can tell. So what's going on? What has happened? What's just occurred? Well, some people are of the uh, opinion and persuasion that, hey, maybe um, this is like a Hebrew word play. The word for branch is kind of close to this word. So like maybe this is like a Hebrew word play to connect him with David. But I'm not one of those people. There's some people who are saying things like, uh, you know, I think this has got something to do uh, with maybe a text that just Matthew is aware of, but like that hasn't been recorded for us. Like maybe that's what's going on. But I'm not one of those people. I think it's way simpler than that. I think that in, in Jesus being born in Nazareth, we fulfilled something that the prophets have tried to make clear to us for a really, really long time. The Lord's not going to do this thing in a way that makes sense to human eyes. Uh, do you remember Nathaniel? Think back with me to Nathaniel from the book of John chapter 1. You say, I don't remember Nathaniel. That's all right. I remember Nathaniel enough for the both of us. So uh, Nathaniel is approached by his brother Philip. And Philip comes to him and says, hey, look, Nathaniel, we've, we found him. Like the one that the law and the prophet said is coming, like the one Moses told us is coming. He's here, and he's Jesus of Nazareth. To which Philip says, which Nathaniel says to Philip, anything good come from Nazareth? By which he means, ain't nothing going on in Nazareth, Philip. There's no way, Philip. That's not what we're looking for, Philip. That ain't it, Philip. A, bunch of, a village with a bunch of farmers, washed up fishermen in it. It's not what we need. Like, we're waiting for the, the guy we're looking for is going to be from the city, and he's going to be big and strong and tall and handsome and probably just ride in on a stallion one day, big sword on his side to come in and overthrow the Romans. That's what we need to happen here. We don't need a hillbilly from Nazareth. Yeah, you do. <laughs> that would make a lot of sense, though, if you were just looking with your physical eyes. But if you're looking with eyes of faith, it, it makes total sense that this is what we need. Because our biggest need is to have our sin problem dealt with. 
And so faith-informed eyes recognize that sin is our biggest problem. Our sin problem is our biggest problem. And the chief solution to this sin problem is this baby who's been born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. But it will take eyes of faith for you to see that. It'll take eyes of faith for you to bet your life on that. It'll take eyes of faith to really believe that the one promised who's coming to crush the head of the serpent is here. It's going to take eyes of faith to see that the one who will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth has arrived. It'll take eyes of faith to see that the true and greater Moses who will speak and the Lord will hold folks to account that hear his word. It's going to take faith to see he's here. It's going to take faith to see that the one who's coming to rule and reign over the people of God forever has arrived because the Lord's not interested in doing this in a way that makes sense to human eyes. And you know that. You've been told that from a long, long time ago. It's going to go down in a way that if you don't have eyes of faith, you won't see it. Hear the word of the Lord, 700 B.C. Who's believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you have eyes of faith? Do you see it? Can you see it? Have you ever seen it? Pray with me. Oh Lord, your word with such great clarity reminds us this morning that you want us to see things. You want us to connect dots. You've not left us in the dark, but Lord, you have revealed yourself to us, and you've revealed yourself to us chiefly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, please give us eyes of faith to see it. Lord, for those of us who walked in here this morning with eyes of faith, strengthen our faith, that we might think and act and live in accordance with your will, that our affections might get on board with your will, that we might be a people who love you and the things of you. And Lord, for those who walked in this morning without eyes of faith, Lord, I pray that you would give them eyes of faith, that you would grant them the spiritual wisdom to understand that they really, really, really want this thing to be about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and not about who they are and what they've done. Oh, Lord, use your word to work in us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to have a song of response. I'll be down on the front row worshiping with you guys if you'd like to talk to me or ask me any questions. Please.